Uh, one day, Jesus was uh, talking to a group of religious people, uh, church people. Uh, he was talking to a group of religious people, uh, people that if you ask, hey, do you believe in God? They would say, oh, absolutely, uh, I believe in God. If you ask them, hey, do you love the scriptures? Oh, yeah, I love the scriptures, I believe the scripture. Hey, do you love attending services at the temple? Love going to the temple. So Jesus was talking to a group of religious people. Uh, we would call them church people. And, and as he was talking to them, he looked at them and he said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the implication on that day from Jesus was this, you're not free. And the reason you're not free is you don't know the truth because if you knew the truth, then you would be set free. But because you're not set free, you don't know the truth because again, if you knew the truth, you will be free. And Jesus talked to this group of religious people that were so caught up in self-denial and so caught up in self-deception because that's where religion often takes us. It takes us to a place where we deny what is real, that we deny reality, we deny what is true. Or it takes us to a place where we get so full of self-deception, we convince ourselves that what is true isn't true and what isn't true is true. And so Jesus looked at a group of people that day and said, hey, you're in self-denial. You won't be honest with yourself. You're in self-deception. You've convinced yourself that something is true that's not true. And I want to let you know that if you know the truth, you can be set free. And if you want to know what this entire series is about, it's about those words of Jesus. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. This whole series is about how honesty always comes before liberty. Honesty always precedes freedom. That's what Jesus was trying to convince the group that day. That's what Jesus is still speaking to all of us, that if you want to be free from whatever it is that you need to be free from, freedom begins with honesty. And so this is what we've been saying for the past few weeks, that the road to freedom begins with being honest with yourself about yourself. Because if you're not honest with yourself about yourself, you'll never be honest with God. And it does no good to try to be honest with God if you're first not intentional if you're first not giving the effort to make sure that you're being honest with yourself. Because the road to freedom begins with being honest with yourself about yourself. Checking self-denial at the door, checking self-deception at the door. And so this series is all about getting honest with ourselves. because when you get honest with you and I get honest with me about me and you get honest with you about you, it's actually the first step towards a better, stronger, healthier you. It's the first step towards a better, stronger, healthier me. That's the first step. The first step towards better, the first step towards stronger, the first step towards healthier is honesty. And we've been talking about the fact that you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide from whatever it is that you're hiding from. You can allow yourself to be found because you have to be found in order to be free. And whatever mess it is that you're trying to hide from or hide in, God will meet you right there in the mess, and he will invite you to follow him out of the mess that many times that you and I have created for ourselves. So that's what this series has been all about, and if you're a guest of ours here or in Williamsburg or Somerset, we're so glad you're here. Uh, to start this fourth week off of content, I thought I would begin with a question, because you're all smart people, and you can handle really difficult questions. And this is a long question, so I need you to just tune in for just a moment and follow me all the way through this question, all right? Here's the question. What do you call people who lie, cuss a little, cheat, covet, are lustful, struggle with greed, have been known to fudge on their taxes, have been a bit racist and sexist, have been known to experience depression, have a problem with anger, a problem with porn, problem with loneliness, 
with being hateful, a problem with being too judgmental and self-righteous, people who can eat too much, drink too much, spend too much, self-medicate too much because of fear, anxiety, or worry, yet they believe that Jesus died for their sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And I know what you're thinking, a member of the Creek Church. That's pretty much it right there. And you know what? You're absolutely right. But it's better than that. You know what you call that? You know what you call those people? You call them Christians. Do you know that becoming a Christian, do you know that following Jesus doesn't make you perfect? Why do we talk as though it does? Why do we talk as if following Jesus makes you get it right most of the time and wrong a little bit of the time. Why don't we just get honest and say, you know what? All of those things, that's our church. It's that church. It's their church. It's every church. It's Christians. That following Jesus does not make you perfect. Matter of fact, following Jesus doesn't even make you almost perfect. May be different for you, but I could venture to say on my account that following Jesus doesn't even make you halfway perfect. Following Jesus is a thing that we talk about a lot, but we don't really talk about it very honestly. Matter of fact, the church has spent decades trying to get people to follow Jesus, and we talked about following Jesus in a way that is not true of what it's really like to follow Jesus. We talk about following Jesus as though life gets easier, and guess what? When you follow Jesus, Things don't really get easier. Things get better, but not necessarily easier. And so we talk about how great it is to follow Jesus, and it is great. We talk about how wonderful it is to follow Jesus, and it is wonderful. But we make it sound as though it's something that it's really not. And so when someone decides to listen to what we say and they decide, hey, I'm going to sign the card, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to get baptized, I'm going to take communion, hey, I'm going to pray that prayer, I'm going to join the church, hey, sign me up, I'm going to place my faith in Jesus. And then they begin to follow Jesus, and then it feels difficult, it feels hard, it feels frustrating, at times it feels discouraging, and all of a sudden, what do they think? They think that something is wrong with them. They think that something is faulty about their faith, that something is inherently dysfunctional in them that is not true of everybody else, because everybody else talked about how wonderful it was. Follow la 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 it's the greatest thing. It also sounded like it was the easiest thing, but then... Some of you, you signed up for faith and you discovered, boy, what they said about it, that didn't feel true at all. Here's what we need to do. We need to get honest about what it really means, what it really feels like, what it really looks like to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is the best thing you'll ever do, but it's not the easiest thing you'll ever do. And here's something else. Let's just be really honest about things. For Jesus followers... The sin and dysfunction of Jesus' followers falls all along the spectrum. You can't name a sin. I dare you to try to think of one that a Jesus follower somewhere doesn't struggle with, isn't battling, maybe succumbing to, surrendering to, being overtaken by. The sin and dysfunction of Jesus' followers, it falls all along the spectrum. Yes, there is such a thing as holiness. Yes, there is such a thing as righteousness. Yes, there is such a thing as sanctification. And some of you are like, sanctify who? Sanctification. Like getting closer to Jesus. Yeah, there's, there's that. 
But there's also this messy, gritty, emotional, frustrating part of following Jesus that's a part of what it means to follow him every single day. This battle, this struggle, this war. And we need to talk about that more. We need to let people know that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, hey, Jesus says follow him. But at the same time, you need to know that even though it's the best thing you'll ever do, it will not be the easiest thing you will ever do. For me, I've been following Jesus since I was 16 years old, and I want to tell you there are times in my life where I would say a few times in my life where it's felt easy, like the wind was at my back, like, okay, I got this. Come on, bring on the world. But that's not been the majority of the time. Most of the time following Jesus has felt like a walk uphill. I don't want to make following Jesus sound like it's a terrible thing or a bad thing. I just want to give you the real and the raw of what it means to follow Jesus. Sometimes it's difficult. Yes, it's the best thing I've ever done. But it's not been the easiest thing I've ever done. At times I followed Jesus and I felt close to Jesus. At times I followed Jesus and I have felt so far from Jesus. At times as I followed Jesus, I felt strong enough to say yes to the right thing and no to the wrong thing. But there have been times in my life where I have followed Jesus and I have been weak enough to say yes to the wrong thing and no to the right thing. At times as I followed Jesus, I overcame sin. At times as I followed Jesus, sin overcame me. There have been times when I followed Jesus that I loved the right thing, the good thing, the lovely thing, and hated the unholy thing, the unlovely thing. But there have been times as I follow Jesus that I fell in love with the unholy thing, the unlovely thing. Following Jesus is the best thing you'll ever do, but it's not the easiest thing you will ever do. There are times in your life and times in my life when we follow Jesus and we'll be focused on the most important thing, but there are many times, the rest of the time, when we follow Jesus that we get focused on other things, important things, but They are not the most important thing. And here's the problem. The problem is, as you follow Jesus, it's easy to get distracted. When you follow Jesus, it's easy to get distracted by someone or something that isn't Jesus. That's just how it is. It's so easy for you, so easy for me, so easy for we to get distracted by someone or something that isn't Jesus as we follow Jesus. Here's here's the fact. We tend to get distracted while following Jesus, and and this is why this is a big deal. And when that happens, anything can happen. Everybody just say anything. Ready? Let's go. So what do you mean by anything? Well, you know, Google it. Get a Webster's Dictionary. Anything means anything. It's the thing you didn't think you were capable of. It's the thing you didn't think you would ever do. It's the thing you never thought you would say yes to. It's the thing you never thought you would say no to. It's the place you never thought you would go. It's the thing you never thought you'd get caught up in. It's the thing that you never would allow to happen to your family or your marriage or to your children or to your finances or to your health or to your faith. We tend to get distracted while following Jesus. And when that happens, anything can happen. And that's why this is such a serious thing. All of us could tell stories. All of us could tell a handful of stories about someone we knew that got distracted in following Jesus. And then all of a sudden, things happened. They made decisions. They made choices. It ruined their marriage. It ruined their family. It ruined their finances. It ruined their health. 
Everybody here could tell that story. Matter of fact, some of us could tell that story about ourselves. We tend to get distracted when we follow Jesus. Matter of fact, here's another fact for us. A distraction can be a catalyst for destruction. A distraction can be the catalyst for destruction. Now, I don't have any teenagers in my house. Alice and I, we have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. But for those of you who have teenagers uh, who are driving or getting ready to drive, I assume that one of the great fears uh, for you concerning your son or your daughter as they drive is the fact that they would be a distracted driver. Now, growing up, you know, we heard in my generation, don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive, even though that's a great message to still adhere to today. Don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive, don't drink and drive. But today, you know, there's a whole other message out there. You know, don't text and drive, don't text and drive, don't text and drive. You know, and, and we've all seen those videos of this is what a car looks like after it hit a semi head on or it hit a tree at 60 miles an hour because somebody reached down for a phone, they replied to a text. We all know as parents that our children can get distracted in certain circumstances and it could be the catalyst for destruction. And so there's this ad campaign and we set them down and we say, listen, whatever you do, don't text and drive. Whatever you do, don't get distracted because you know as a mom or as a dad that distraction can lead to destruction. Let me ask you this question. Let's say you find out you need surgery, right? You, you need something taken out, need something moved over, need something made bigger, something made smaller. You know, you, you, you just got some kind of surgery coming up. Let me ask you a question. Do you want a distracted surgeon? I didn't think so. You, you don't want to go in for an appendectomy and come out one kidney down. You don't want to go in for the right knee and come out, you know, and the left knee is all bandaged up. It's like... Oh my gosh. The doctor says, oh, it looked better than what I thought it was. Well, that's because it's the wrong one. Who wants to hop on a plane, fly across the country, fly across the ocean with a distracted pilot? How many spouses want to have a conversation with a distracted spouse? Listen, destruction often is caused by distraction. Some of the worst accidents, some of the worst folly, some of the worst choices, some of the worst decisions came as a means of being distracted. And distraction became the catalyst for something destructive. That's the reason when you read through the scriptures, beginning at the first part of the scripture with the Jewish scriptures and going all the way through the New Testament, you're going to find so much of God saying this. Hey, don't look over there. Don't look over there. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Keep your eyes on me. Stay focused on me because... Within you and within me, there is this capacity to get easily distracted. Again, I say, we have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old at our house. Do you know how easily distracted an eight-year-old and a five-year-old can be? Hey, hey, son, look at me. And then they'll look at you for like 2.7 seconds. And you're trying to say something important, and all of a sudden, they're looking up at the ceiling. They're looking down. It's like, look at me. Don't be so easily distracted. Distractions can be a really devastating, destructive thing. It's a big deal. And the reason that God constantly reminded his people, hey, don't get distracted over here, don't get distracted with that, is this right here. That an unfocused faith results in an unrestrained life. When you get distracted, when you lose focus in life, you lose certain restraints which keep you safe. And the same is true as it relates to our faith. When your faith, when my faith becomes unfocused, we ultimately 
become unrestrained in the way that we live, unrestrained in our behavior, unrestrained in the choices that we make and the decisions that we make and the things that we do and the things that we won't do. There are people who lose focus and they make decisions as it relates to their family that the ripples of those decisions will be felt for two and three generations. There are Christians, people who follow Jesus, husbands and wives who get distracted, unfocused in their faith, and they make decisions in those moments of distraction, and it destroys the marriage. There's Christian moms and Christian dads and Christian single dads and Christian single moms, grandparents who are Christian who are raising their grandchildren, that they get distracted for just a moment, and they make decisions as it relates to their son or daughter, grandson, granddaughter, that can possibly undermine the faith of that child. I mean, some devastating things, destructive things can happen when we become unfocused with our faith. When we get unfocused with our faith and we become unrestrained in our lifestyle and unrestrained with our morality and unrestrained in our decision-making, it can cost you joy, it can cost you peace, it can cost you all the things that are associated with following Jesus. No wonder the writer of Hebrews, which by the way, we have no idea who it was, but the author of Hebrews, along the same lines with all the Old Testament as the backdrop for all that we read in the New Testament book of Hebrews, no wonder the author of Hebrews said this, we must pay the most careful attention. Everybody say attention. Pay attention, right? It's like a parent talking to a kid again. Pay attention. I mean, we can come to church and, you know, some of you sing, some of you Jesus couldn't get you to sing during the music and that's okay. We're better to be here than not sing than, you know, the alternative. Uh, then you come in and, you know, you, you're vaguely aware there's some guy up there with a microphone and he's talking. You're not really ever, pretty much not ever had a clue what he's saying because it doesn't make much sense and he talks too fast and it's like he goes, blah, 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 and, and it might as well be that in your ear. And then at the end of it, you know, somebody asks you, what, what did he talk about? Well, he talked about 45 minutes and, uh, you know, and, and that's pretty much what it was. Uh, a bit too long like it always is. Uh, what, what was it about? Well, I, Jesus. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, we can come to church with the express purpose of doing what it is that we do when we come to church, express our faith, get together as a faith family. And, and even sitting there and even being up here sometimes, it's so difficult to pay attention I mean, when one of those angelic children that come into the service and decide that, you know, that's going to be the moment in time that they're going to shine. You know, and it's like the parents are deaf. They don't hear them. I mean, it's amazing. The, the parents totally do not hear the 450 people sitting around them. They're like all looking here. And it's like sometimes it's like preaching in Atlanta Hartsville Airport. I mean, it's like a circus. It's up and down. I mean, sometimes it's hard to pay attention up here. Paying attention is not easy. It's strenuous. It takes a lot of effort. And the writer says, hey, pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, to the truth. Because, you know, the truth, it'll set you free. Why? Pay attention so that we do not drift away. Now, drifting, th this is interesting to think about this imagery. He says, if you get distracted, when you get distracted and unfocused in your faith, you begin to drift towards destruction. Now, drifting is passive. It's not active. Matter of fact, think about this for just a moment. Drifting indicates that you've lost control. Drifting indicates that you have given up control. When you're drifting on the water, the current is in control. You're no longer actively taking effort to control where you're headed. You're at the mercy of the current. You're at the mercy of the wind. 
You are drifting. You're out of control. Now, drifting doesn't sound like a word that means out of control. Now, in the old days, you know, I say old days. Oh, Lord, I can't believe I just said the old days. The old days when I was a kid, uh, I'm discouraged. Back just a few years ago, uh, when I was a kid, uh, the preachers would get up and they would use this term. Are you backslidden? How many of y'all have heard the term backslidden? Go ahead and raise your hands. Williamsburg, okay. Some of you, I'm very sorry for how you were raised. You missed out on so much. Backslidden, are you ready for this? It means that you slid backwards. See, we were a deeper church back then. It means you slid backwards from where you were. You drifted backwards. Once upon a time, the idea was you were closer to Jesus than what you are now. You've drifted back. You've slid back. Once upon a time, you were more excited about your faith. You were more focused. You were more committed. You were more generous. You served more. You showed up more. You took it more seriously than what you do now. But you have drifted. You have slid backward. You gave up control to some current in your life, some current in my life, the winds that were blowing. And you began to drift because you got distracted. Now, here's the thing about drifting. It happens a little at a time, right? You know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful for that engineering genius. It may have not been an engineer. I'm thankful for that genius, whoever he or she was, that put those little things out there on the side of the road, out there on you know, the shoulder, those little rumble strips, as you're driving down the road, and it's like, oh, Lord Jesus. Yeah, it's like... And you didn't even realize you were drifting until you heard that. And then, you know, it's like, oh, my goodness. I mean, that's the Holy Spirit right there. If the Holy Spirit was like a rumble strip, some of us, we would have stayed out of the guardrail. Somebody's been there, done that, bought the blue jeans. But you get over there and it's all of a sudden, boom, you're back to consciousness. You weren't even thinking about it. You were just drifting. Can you imagine before the day? Those little suckers were there. How did we not die? Many, many, many times. You drift a little bit at a time. Drifting isn't sudden. It's not. It's slow. It's slow. Now, here's the idea. When you get distracted when you follow Jesus, you turn to something or someone other than Jesus. And when you get distracted and begin to drift from Jesus, you are drifting towards destruction. When you get distracted in following Jesus, you begin to drift away from Jesus. And it often happens without you noticing, and it often happens without me noticing. It happens a little bit at a time. It's a little slow fade. And oftentimes we don't realize that we've drifted until it's too late. We ignored the rumble strip. We ignored the, you know, the signs and we ignored the sirens and we ignored the alarms and we ignored the advice and we ignored our friends and we ignored our spouse and we ignored the pastor. And, and we didn't realize we were drifting until it was way too late. When Allison and I uh, first got married, um, we really, we didn't have enough money to pay attention. Uh, we didn't. Uh, somebody asked us, said, hey, you, you, wanna, you wanna go on a cruise? Uh, we're going to some tropical islands, going to the Caribbean, and we knew we couldn't afford it, and we kind of looked at each other and said, oh, no, you know, the schedule's too full, and, and, and the person who loved us was very generous, said, well, we'll pay, and it's like, okay, yeah, we, we're available, and, and, and 
We didn't have a way to get there in those days. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. If, if they weren't generous enough to say, hey, we kind of know you're in that season of life where you just haven't got the means. Hey, we want you to go. And so we went on this cruise and we, we'd never been on a cruise before. We'd never, you know, seen islands, you know, before like that. And the only thing I'd seen had been the little island over there at Norris Lake and, you know, in Cherokee. And, you know, so it's much different down there in the Caribbean. I'm just going to tell you. And, and, and so we went on this cruise and, and one day we woke up and went to this island. And, you know, I've always been kind of the, uh, you know, entrepreneurial, explorer, kind of Lewis and Clark in my soul kind of guy. I decided we, we should go do something. We should, we, should, we should go do something we've never done before. So we, we went out, we got with another couple that was on the cruise with us, and, and, and we rented a catamaran, you know, like a sailboat. Now, I had never captained a boat before, but that didn't stop me. Uh, I, I had a lot of confidence in myself, and I, I believed that I could learn. And so when we rented the, the sailboat that day, the guy, you know, the only piece of advice was, he looked at me and he said, okay, the only thing you need to know, zigzag, zigzag, zigzag. I got that, zigzag, zigzag, zigzag. Hey, we're down. And, and so, you know, we pushed off from the shore, you know, from those white sand beaches, and, and there we are, and I'm back there captain of my vessel and I've got a plan I'm going to take us out because I can see you know out there on the point of the island looks like a secluded place kind of romantic nice place to go just kind of chill for a while to get away from you know you know the, the people and, and because it's always good to get away from the people and and so we were going to go some privacy and so we got out there and I was zigzagging and the wind was behind our back and I'm like I was impressed with me. I, I, I mean, I am going exactly in the direction that I want to go. And, and, and then we came up, you know, on the point of the island, which was pretty far out there, because at this point, I look back there, and the people, you know, back there on the shore, they, they're, they're about the size of a, of a small ant. And, and so, I mean, we're out there, and the water's gotten really dark blue, and you can tell it's really deep. And, and, and I'm trying to get to that other shore, but the zigzag stopped working. You know, apparently there was another step. The wind was not cooperating. And all of a sudden, we were adrift. But I was still fully in control of this drift. And all of a sudden, here comes, I see this guy coming on a boat. And he said, hey, Mon, you need some help? No. <laughs> I don't know what it looks like to you, but to me, I am totally in control. I don't need your help. And he said, okay. And he went back and... We just kept drifting, kept drifting. A few minutes later, when we can see nobody on the shore, he comes back again. And I think, well, he's going to ask me again if I need some help. This time, no. He says, you are taking my help. And he gives us a rope and he drags us back in. And it was very frustrating and very discouraging. And I haven't rented a catamaran like that ever since. But I look back on it now, and even though I was drifting further and further and further and further and further away from where I actually wanted consciously to be, I felt like I was in control the whole way. See, we tend to feel in control even when we drift out of control. Some of us are drifting into dangerous waters, and we feel like we're totally in control. We feel like we got the bulls by the horn. That's why the writer says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away. And there's that language again. See that you don't get distracted so much so that you turn away. Because when you follow Jesus and you get distracted and you begin to drift, you're going to turn away. And what you turn away to will never be as good or as great or as lovely or as wonderful or as fulfilling as what you turned away from.
Don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart because here's the thing. When we go back and we perform the autopsy on some of the worst decisions, some of the worst choices, some of the worst seasons, the weakest seasons of our life, we can go back and we can see how we rationalized it and justified it and we can blame them and can blame that and we can say, yeah, if you've been there, you'd have done the same thing. We have a thousand and one ways to make ourselves feel good about the wrong thing. But when you get to the very heart of the heart of the heart of it all, the writer says it's a sinful, unbelieving heart. Now, when you get distracted, you begin to drift. And when you turn away, it's because you stop believing God. It's because you stop believing that he was good and that his plan for you is good. You stop believing on some level that the bad could be made good. And so you took it into your hands to try to take the bad and make it good by yourself. You tried to cope yourself. You tried to medicate yourself. You tried to do all of that. He says, see to it that you don't do this. Because when you drift, it can be destructive. Because at the heart of every sin is unbelief. He says, but rather, encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. He says, listen, sin is so deceitful. Sin, sin, is, sin is an incredible salesman. Sin can convince you that the, this is unbelievable. This seems like it's not possible, but it's possible. Sin can convince you. It may be convincing you right now. Sin can convince me that what I have been told is wrong, what once upon a time I believed was wrong, what once upon a time I read was wrong, all my life believed was wrong. Sin can be so deceitful as to convince you what you once upon a time believed was wrong is now right. What you believed once upon a time was harmful, that it's now helpful to you. That, that's how deceitful sin is. And then when you put on top of the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of my own heart and your own heart, which Jeremiah said, the, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? I mean, that's some dangerous territory. If my heart is so deceitful that it convinced me that what is good is bad and what is bad is good and what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. And, and if sin can do that and my heart already wants to believe that, that's a bad place to be. That's a bad set of cards to be dealt. We could all tell our stories about how sin promised happiness, but on the other end of the sin it was misery. Yeah, there was pleasure in sin for a season. But it was like the proverb says, it was like eating honey until it turned to gravel. Sin promises life, but delivers death. Sin says, hey, you can be responsible and manage the consequences. You can be irresponsible. You, you, you can drift away. You can turn away. You can do your own thing your own way. Your kid's not going to suffer for it. You're not going to suffer for it. You know, the business will be okay. The finances will be okay. You know, your health will be okay. You, you can just be irresponsible, but somehow you are going to be the anomaly that's going to escape the certain consequences. That's what sin does. Even as we follow Jesus, sin will attract us. And then you know what sin does? It will attack us. Sin's a serious matter. And yeah, churches have talked about sin for a long time. Most of the time we like to talk about the sin of those outside. We don't, we don't want to talk about like the fact that we're actually struggling with sin. That, that we are led away by our own. Jesus, his half-brother James, James said, hey, 
Forget being tempted by, you know, the devil, you know, and I don't want to minimize the fact that Jesus said we have an enemy, and I don't want to minimize the fact that Paul said, hey, we're in a war, you know, against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, you know, Ephesians chapter 6. I don't want to minimize any of that, but at the same time, James said, hey, I don't need any of that because most of the time I'm led away by my own desires. Do you know that even when you follow Jesus, your desires can be jacked up? See, I wasn't expecting you to be too responsive today, but it is really quiet. <laughs> this is one of those services, you probably have to pee, but you're not going to get up. Because you're, you're afraid people think, I wonder what they got going on. <laughs> he says, I'm led away more times than not by my own desire. I don't need Satan. I don't need the devil. I don't need a tempter. Hey, I got it in my own heart. And James would go on to say that when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, you know what it brings forth? It brings forth death. And so the writer, he keeps saying these things over and over and over again. And then he introduces us to the beginning of the solution. And the solution that he's going to introduce to us is just the opposite. That a focused faith results in a restrained life. That if you can refuse distraction, or even if you get distracted, not get distracted so long that you begin to drift, that you can remain focused in your faith, and then you will remain restrained in how you live your life. You'll say yes more to the right things and no more to the wrong things. It's not going to be perfect. It's not always going to be clean and still going to be a little bit messy, but a focused life. Listen, you've been at your best in your relationship with Jesus when you've been most focused on Jesus when your faith was focused. And so he introduces us to verses we've, we've heard all of our life, that faith is confidence in what we hope for. It's assurance of what we do not see. Faith believes what it can't see. Faith believes what it can't feel. Faith believes what it can't hear. Faith believes what it can't touch. So you, you may not see how saying yes to the right thing is the better thing. But when faith is involved, you believe it's the better thing even when it doesn't look like the better thing, even when it doesn't feel like the better thing, when it doesn't sound like the better thing. That's how faith works. And he says, this is what the ancients were commended for. Faith doesn't have to see it to believe it. Faith doesn't have to hear it or touch it to believe it. Now, it's the same thing that we've heard throughout the scripture. You walk by faith and not by what? Talk to me. You know how sin loves us to walk? By sight. How did we get into this mess to begin with? In the garden, Eve and Adam saw that the tree was good. Sin loves for us to walk by what we hear and by what we can touch and by what we can feel and by what we can see. Sin loves for us to live by our senses. And when we live by our senses, more times than not, we lose our sensibilities. But faith is something entirely different. Faith gives up immediate gratification for ultimate gratification. Sight will give up the ultimate gratification for the immediate gratification. And so he says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, you can please you, you can please others, but you can't please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so then he talks about all these great heroes of faith, you know, Sarah and Abraham and Joseph and references people like Elijah and David and Samson and all, Gideon and all these others. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he makes his point. He says, therefore, after saying everything that I've said, 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, we've heard this verse all of our lives, and most of us, we weren't convinced that anybody we heard talk about this actually knew what it meant, and I'm not sure I know what it means. But I think I know what the person is insinuating, and I don't, I don't have answers to all the implications of are they watching from heaven? Are they leaning over? You know, what can they know? What do they know? Do they hear everything? Do they see everything? Oh, my God. You know, can we put some aluminum foil on the ceiling of our bedroom? You know, I mean, how does, how, I don't know how that works. But, but here's what the writer says. The writer says, you should live your life as though these great heroes of faith, men and women, are watching you. Because this is interesting. The writer then, he knew at that moment what science is telling us today. We all do better when we know people are watching Employees work better when they know their employers are watching. They've actually done studies with people who go to the gym. They're stronger when more people are around watching. We've all accommodated our behavior for a particular audience. We have dinner guests over. We're around a new group of people. You know, we kind of accommodate. We don't let our hair down. We don't talk exactly the way we normally talk. Beyond that, people are watching. Your kids are watching. The people you work with are watching. Your faith family's watching. He says, so knowing that people are watching, let it inspire you and motivate you. Let us throw off everything that hinders, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Don't get distracted and drift and turn away and end up in destructive waters. He says, wrestle with these two questions. What's preventing you from being the best you? What's preventing you from being the best version of you? And the second question is this. What sin are you holding on to that's pulling you away? What sin are you holding on to, am I holding on to, that is pulling me away? He says, because you can't afford to be pulled away. You can't afford to be weighted down. He says, just imagine all of heaven's watching. Your family's watching. Your friends are watching. Your parents are watching. So lay down what needs to be laid down. Get untangled from whatever it is that's mastering you. So for you, what weights do you need to lay down? What sin do you need to let go of? What has gotten you stuck? Because you refuse to let it go. What habits exist right now in your life that you need to change in order to change your life? Experts say that 40% of what we do every day is done out of habit. That means 40% of what we do most days of our lives, we are totally, not consciously, directing how we live. The illusion of control over our lives is, is pretty much that. It's an illusion. For some... Your daily routine, it's a weight. Man, you gotta change it. I mean, you wake up the same hateful person every single day of your life. Come on, change something. You're driving the kids crazy, driving the family crazy, driving your wife crazy. For some of you, the way you manage your money, it's got you stressed out at the end of every month, but yet you do nothing any different. And it's weighing you down. It's robbing you of peace, joy, and life. For some of you, your weight has become an actual sin. For some of you, it's gossip. I mean, you talk, you talk, you talk about everybody. 
you hear? How is it that you know everything that's going on with everybody? Seems like that makes your ears a garbage dump. If everybody comes to you to tell you what's going on in everybody else's life, you ought to pay attention to that. It's the weight of gossip. It's this, it's this sin we get caught up in. For some, it's slander. I mean, it's just, you talk about people all the time. And you don't even realize it. We don't even realize it sometimes. We've got so distracted, we're just drifting, and we don't even pay attention to it anymore. For some of it, it's not exercising. It's not eating right. It's drinking too much. It's smoking too much. It's eating too much. It's spending too much. What weight is holding you back? What is it that's going on in your life? Is it your schedule? You're overextended. You're here. You're there. You're everywhere except for the places with the people you need to be? And what about the sin that so easily entangles us? And let's just, for some of you, your habits and my habits have, have stepped over into a much worse territory. Do you know that Jesus followers struggle with addiction? People who love Jesus, people who follow Jesus, people who believe Jesus can also struggle with addiction. Do you know that one out of 10 people have an addiction to either alcohol or some type of drug, whether prescription or illegal? Do you know some are addicted to food? They can't stop eating the things that they eat even though it's killing them. For some, it's sex. For some, it's gambling. 75%, and this is, you know, I hear Christians, you know, kind of uh, whitewash what this issue looks like or what they think it looks like what addiction looks like, the face of addiction, the dress of addiction, the social class of addiction. Do you know that 75% of people who have an addiction have a job, work hard, making a living, many of them making a very good living? Do you know that a lot of people who are addicted to what they're addicted to is sitting in a church somewhere on Sunday? What sin are you holding on to? that nobody knows about, that you need to let go of? What weight is dragging you down? The writer says, lay it down and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him so you don't get distracted, so you don't drift, so you don't turn. Consider him endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Think about what he sacrificed for you. And why would you and why would I not be willing to lay it down if it's an unhealthy weight? If it's hurting me, if it's hurting her, if it's hurting him, if it's hurting them, if it's a sin that I won't let go of, why would I not be willing to let go of it when he did what he did for me? He says, don't get distracted. Don't drift. Don't turn. Don't find yourself in dangerous waters. And when the lifeboat comes, don't pretend that you've got it under control and say, that's okay. I don't need 
anyone's help. The difference between who you are today and who you want to be tomorrow is what you do right now. It's what you do today. It's what you do in the moment. It's my responsibility and your responsibility that if we want freedom from the weight, from the sin, is to walk towards freedom. And you know what the first step is in the walk towards freedom? Honesty. Some of you need to be honest about your weight. Some of you just need to ask someone to pray for you concerning your weight. Some of you, you've been taking more pills than the prescription says. You got a bottle hid there, you got a bottle hid here, you got a bottle in the car, you got a bottle in the trunk, and nobody knows that what was once under control is now out of control. And it's destroying you. You're hiding where the money's going. You're hiding it from your kids. You're hiding it from her. You're hiding it from him. And you need to be honest about it. Say, can Jesus set me free? That's why he died. Jesus can set you free, but he expects you and I to walk out of the jail. He can open up the cell, but he wants us to walk out and to begin to do the things that we need to do. And for many, it's owning it, saying, I need help. I need to lay something down. Something's got a hold on me, and I don't, I don't know what to do about it. For many of you today, that's your first step, is being honest. In just a moment, we're going to sing at all of our campuses, and some of our pastors are going to be down front. And maybe today the best thing that you can do is to be honest about the thing that's causing you to drift away from the thing that you're holding on to that's holding you back. This morning is the lifeboat saying, do you need help? Don't refuse the lifeboat. Jesus says, no matter who, no matter what, come follow me. And the first step of following Jesus, the first step towards better, stronger, healthier, is honesty. Father, speak to us. Holy Spirit, show us the weights. Show us the habits. Show us the unhealthy things that are holding us down, weighing us down. God, for some of us, we've gotten entangled in sin and we don't even realize it. But perhaps we do. Perhaps we've suspected that we've been caught up, entangled, mastered by for some time now. And we've just been embarrassed. We've been too intimidated to be honest about it. I pray today that people would take steps of honesty. That this is a safe place. In a room full of imperfect people, this is the perfect place to be imperfect. This is the perfect place to be open about our weights and our addictions and our sins that we're caught up in. God, speak to us. Let those who need to take a step of honesty today, let them take it. Even though it won't be easy, though it will be the best thing that they can do. I pray that you would speak to hearts in this moment as only you can. In Jesus' name.